0: this person max is going to do whatever it takes he's just cannot eat sleep or breathe unless he's just thinking over the problem all the time he even forced you know not forced he even got me and our board member roloff at sequoia to brainstorm about how to grow this program and just that's the kind of person he is and so i knew that when he told me he was planning to leave square a few months out that i wanted to invest in his company whatever the
1: company is You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. A podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Gokul Rajaram is the Head of Products at Caviar, a division at DoorDash. He has held leadership roles at Google, Facebook, and Square, and has led the launch of many important products. Gokul is considered the godfather of AdSense, which revolutionized the ad tech industry. He's a successful entrepreneur, corporate executive, board member, and an angel investor. In this episode, Gokul and I discuss his journey in the Silicon Valley, how an MBA helped him, and his experience as an angel investor. You will learn the specific things that Gokul looks for in an entrepreneur when he makes angel investments. You will also see an insider view into the expectations of an angel investor, what he expects to achieve through his angel investments. Gokul, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Tell us about yourself. Thanks,
0: Gopi. It's great to be here. Well, it's the classic story of an engineer turned product manager turned uh, a business executive. I started out, I started out, I got my undergrad education in India where I got a bachelor's degree in computer science more than two decades ago. I then came to the United States to uh, get a graduate degree in computer science. I went to UT Austin. And I I have to say that going to a state school, uh, which has a good football team, was a great way for me to uh, get acclimatized to the US, to college, and to American culture broadly. I am very grateful that I went to UT Austin. It has a great football team. And so I wear my Longhorns hat more proudly than all, anything else out there. I met lots of Longhorns fans over the years. But after UT Austin, after I got my computer science degree, I was faced with an interesting challenge, which maybe we'll talk about later, but ended up with me going into the software industry, becoming a software engineer, Got my MBA after two years. And again, we can talk about the reasons for why I went for an MBA and what I recommend on the MBA front. I got my MBA from the Sloan School at MIT and then moved out to the Valley immediately after that. Ended up getting a job at Google, uh, leading product for a young product a not yet launched product, which became known as Google AdSense. I was lucky enough to work on it, helped grow it over the years, and then left to start my company with my brother, which got acquired by Facebook. And so I ended up leading ads at Facebook for three, three and a half years. And uh, from there, moved to Square um, and um, ended up leading first the point of sale team. And then Caviar, which is a food delivery service that Square acquired, was a GM for Caviar for a few years. And then Caviar was acquired by DoorDash from Square. As part of that, moved to DoorDash about seven months ago and have been at DoorDash. So I joked that I've only worked at companies that are private. So I've worked at I've worked Google it was private. Facebook and it's private. Square and it's private. Now DoorDash when it's private. And typically I've been employee between 500 to 1,000 at a company. Google I was, I think, employed 600 or 700. Facebook also around seven 800. Square around 600, et cetera. So that that's, seems to be the sweet spot for me.
1: You have this... Uh the knack of finding opportunities at companies that go before you join them before they go IPO. And you did that with uh, Google, with Facebook and Square. Tell us about that experience. Maybe you can also touch on the MBA part of it and how that helped you.
0: Yeah, crazily enough, even the first job after my master's in computer science, I ended up joining a pre-IPO company. And this was at a time where I didn't even know what an IPO was really, uh, very clearly. And the reason I joined the company, it's the same as the reason I joined Google, Facebook, Square, et cetera, is two things. One, I was excited by the mission of the company. The first company I joined, Juno, had the mission of making the internet free. So it was a free email service. Back then, people pay for AOL and access to the internet email. And and this company, Juno, had the mission of making the internet free and accessible. And that really resonated with me. And the same with Google's mission, Facebook's mission, Square's mission. And the second one is the leadership, the CEO. In every company, I've had the chance, even when I was an engineer working at Juno, I had a chance during the recruitment process to actually meet the CEO and the leader of the company. And I was really impressed by and really felt a personal connection with them and felt that they are the right leader for this company and that I can learn a lot working with them, whether it was Charles at Juno, Larry at uh, at Google back then, Mark and Cheryl at, at Facebook, and then Jack Dorsey at Twitter at, at Square. All four of them just epitomized the mission in a way I thought was really compelling. So the mission and the leader are the two reasons I've always chosen companies. And somehow it's led me to pre-IPO companies, strangely enough. Uh, the MBA question is a good one. And uh, I've basically come to the realization after this many years that the right time to do the right reason to do the MBA, and I think the only reason to do the MBA is if you want to change your career. If you want a different career direction than what you're going down. And if that career path is not, that new career path that you desire is not available within your current company. So at Juno, for example, I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to go into more of a product management style role, but ironically, Juno didn't have product managers. In fact, the reason I even knew a product manager was because I got to do at Juno, since they didn't have the product manager role, uh, I ended up uh, talking to customers myself as an engineer and a tech lead, I ended up doing mock-ups. They didn't even have a clear design function. So I ended up doing the mocks. They had a design function that was for high-fidelity designs, but who would do the sketches? So I ended up doing actually the sketches of what the product should be. I ended up writing the requirement documents, talking to customers, and so on. And I realized I enjoyed that part of the process much more than I did just building the product. And this led me to say, well, what, what does this role, is there a role like this? Uh, Did some research turns out there was a role called product management and Juno didn't want to have product managers for for various philosophical reasons. And the only way I could make that change was by changing companies, which was hard. I always say that you change companies, it's hard to change companies and change tracks or career paths at the same time, You can do one or the other. So at Juno, there was no opportunity to do that. So I decided to go to business school in order to become a product manager. And I've seen this happen many times. Investment bankers or consultants might go to business school to become a product manager or vice versa. Engineers go to school to become bankers or, or venture capitalists or something else. So I think that's the number one reason. And I think the really the only reason to change career paths if you want to, ch- to, to go to business school, if you want to change your career track and you can't do it in the company like
1: that. You described many things here, what you look for in a company when you joined and you see a common thread between uh, many different companies you joined, the mission of the company and the leadership, and both of them impressed you. And you also talked about the MBA experience and what can be the best way to use the MBA experience. It's mainly for transitioning from one area to another area in your career. You also became a very active angel investor. You've invested in more than 100 companies. How did that come about?
0: With angel investing, I think almost every angel investor I've talked about has started with one common theme, which is the people that they've worked with. So in my case also, it was basically based on a person. In this case, there was a guy, Satya Patel, who worked for me at Google. And in two thousand, early 2017, late 2016, uh, sorry, 2006, 2007, about 14 years, 13 years ago, he left Google to become a venture capitalist at Battery Ventures. I kind of knew vaguely what... What bad venture capital is it? Obviously, I, started, I knew it, but I didn't really pay much attention till Satya left Google, which I thought was a great company, and he became a venture capitalist. I was like, Satya, why are you doing this? Why are you going to be a VC? And Satya, of course, now is an amazingly successful and one of the top seed investors in the Valley as part of a firm called Homebrew, which he co-founded. And Satya told me, Google, go, I like working at Google, but what I really like is working across a bunch of different problems, across different spaces with different entrepreneurs. And uh, he said, well, you know, why don't you try it? I said, well, I don't know. I'm really busy. He's like, well, we're leading our investment in a company called World Golf Tour. It was a virtual golfing game. Why don't you look at it if, if you're interested in investing? And I said, well, that seems interesting. And so just working with Battery and Satya to basically look at this company, World Golf Tour, and even though I don't play golf, I'm an avid golf watcher. So I, I love watching golf. I don't have the time to go out to the golf course, or I hit balls occasionally. It was a great entrepreneur. Really liked the company. Really liked the product itself. And because Satya and Battery were investing and in leading the round, decided you know let me make an investment. And at the very least, I'll, I'll get to learn more about the arc of company formation, and uh, and stay close. And that's that's what happened. I ended up doing it, and it really just got me excited about helping entrepreneurs, being involved in early stages of a company formation, supporting them. And it's all started with, with Satya. So Satya is, to, is either to credit or to blame for my becoming an
1: angel investor. I didn't know that watching golf can be a sport. Uh, I have to try that out someday. This is very interesting. Uh, when you make these angel investments, uh, what I hear is that you're looking to connect with people uh, that are building interesting things. So that kind of sparks some ideas in you and you keep your mind fresh. But what kind of people do you like to invest in? Are they people like you? Are they people who are very different from you? What do you look for?
0: Mm, Good question. What kind of people do I like to invest in? I think I look for two characteristics of founders. One, I, I use, I think Paul Graham came up with this term. I like this a lot. It's called relentlessly resourceful. Relentlessly resourceful means the founder will do anything possible to surmount an obstacle. They will never give up. They're going to figure out how to move heaven and earth to get around a problem. Grit is another way to look at it or just never give up. Walk through walls, do whatever it takes. So that determination to just break through walls, they're just hellbent on achieving success. You cannot stop them. You almost feel like you are a gravitational pull towards them when you meet them when they describe what they've gone through. So you want to, for example, assess this by asking them for examples of tough problems they face in their life and how they've overcome it. It could be in life, it could be in their career, it could be personal. And you want to see, have they been really resourceful? Have they used whatever they can to do that? Obviously, another, another way is to see them in action if you work with them. So I look for relentless resource, relentlessly resourceful people. The second thing I look for is founder market fit. By this, I mean... Um, the the founder has a unique, non-obvious insight about the market. Non-obvious is very important. It can't be something that you or I have just read in TechCrunch or some blog. And we say, oh, the container market, which is in a uh, computer technology infrastructure, is is X big, and here's the player. That that's not an insight. But if you say the container market is prone to disruption, or is because this is the weakness in the market, and this is the existing players can be disrupted by the specific need which customers have, which they're not, which are not meeting, but it's going to it's very tiny today, can be much bigger. And here's how I know this, because I was a buyer of these products or a user of these products before. That's an interesting insight that no only people who have a specific who've actually encountered this problem in their work or in their life can come up with. That's why I think the best way to start a company is not by sitting in a room and iterating and uh, going off ideas with other people bouncing ideas off but actually to just just work and live life and keep your eye open for problems that you encounter in work or life and then see hey is there an interesting product or company here that can that can tackle this problem
1: can you pick maybe one or two examples and show how you test for these two things how entrepreneurs are relentlessly resourceful and how you look for that founder market fit what comes through in those conversations
0: yeah, let me uh, let me take an example. A company called Indigo Fair. Uh, it's called uh, F A I R E Fair with an E at the end. So Indigo Fair, the founder Max Rhodes. Max was a product manager at Square. He was in, instrumental in launching many of the top products at Square and was involved in many many uh, of the products. Uh, but at the at the last part of his career at Square, he worked for me on Caviar, and he was our uh, Product manager on caviar for the consumer product, consumer side of caviar, is a product lead for it. And um, Max is someone who, literally, uh, when given an outcome or a metric to hit, he will figure out what it takes to hit the metric. For example, we said we need to figure out how to uh, scale user acquisition without spending money on traditional channels. He figured out how to build a referral program and just scaled it so fast, so quickly that we almost. Almost fell down. We couldn't. We couldn't support the volume. We couldn't support that scale, and that's the kind of person that Max is. Every person who's managed him knows that, given an outcome, given an objective, this person, Max, is going to do whatever it takes. He's just cannot eat, sleep, or breathe unless he's just thinking about the problem all the time. He even forced, you know, not forced, he even got me and our port member Roloff at Sequoia, to brainstorm about how to how to grow this program, and just that's the kind of person he is. And so I knew that when he told me he was planning to leave Square a few months out that I wanted to invest in his company, whatever the company is, and um, it, it made sure that hey, I gave him opportunities. You know, when someone's wanting to leave the company, my philosophy on that is that uh, you don't just say, well, what, what does it get to take? Uh, take get to, You obviously ask them that question, what, does it, what will it take to get you to stay here? But if their mind is made up, you want to support them. And so I said, Max, what can I do to support you? He said, well, I want a bunch of experiences, different kinds of experiences besides just product, general manager style experience, et cetera. And so, you know, we gave him those experiences in the last six, nine months at Caviar, where he was kind of the GM of our new corporate business unit that we were starting up. He did a great job there. And I think it gave him some good experience. It was good for him and for Caviar. So when he left, so that was relentlessly resourceful where, you know, we knew, I knew from experience that he was this kind of person. But I'll tell you about Founder Market Fit with Max. When he left, the first six, nine months uh, after leaving Square, he basically left and he was basically brainstorming a bunch of ideas. Exactly the wrong way to go but in my opinion. He was brainstorming. There was an auto insurance idea that he had, another idea around, you know, something in the dental space. You know, it's basically he heard about the problem from someone else and I think he was exploring it. It was all very academic, and I think that's why I'm very happy. He didn't start a company around any of those things. Any of those things. What happened uh, at the end uh, is that he realized he was running a business all through Square. He he had graduated from Yale many years ago before Square, and he was running a business. He was he started an umbrella company. It, it built these custom umbrellas, really high quality umbrellas. I don't know how he got into that, but he was running this company as a side side business uh, all through Square. And the big challenge he faced as an umbrella maker was that it was very hard for him to find, beyond his own website, retail stores to stock this umbrella. And how does he go and sell to these retail stores? It's very hard. Uh, he's done, he has a job at Square, he's, he's making umbrellas. How does he find retailers? And how do retailers find him? Very hard. He know he has a good quality product, but he needs to get connected to retailers. So he thought, hey, you know, maybe like me, I, I have this pain point. Why don't I work on something? Is there enough other people who have this pain point? of them being manufacturers, not being able to reach retailers. And the more he dug deeper into it, he learned, yes, there's tons of manufacturers who are unable to connect to retailers. They would love to have their products stocked at retailers. They don't know how to connect with them. And then because he had been at Square, he was able to connect to retailers, local retailers, and the retailers had the exact same problem, which is they don't know which products to stock. They don't know how to get access to products. And they basically are worried that, if they stock a product, the, reason, the fundamental reason retailers would not stock Max's product is because what if it doesn't sell? What if it doesn't sell? Then they're stuck with inventory that basically they can't sell and they have to write it off. It's, you know, for a small retailer, it's, it's very painful to do that. Impossible. They'll run a be out of business. So they only stock the same old, same old versus trying, trying, you know, some new products, which could be good for sales. So that's the problem he tried to, he said, you know, I'm going to solve this because I feel I've faced it myself for years. And that was the origin of FAIR or Indigo FAIR, which became FAIR later. And so that's a great example of founder market fit. solving a problem you felt deeply. And he didn't realize he had this problem. He was just taking it as granted. It's when he really said, I'm going to start a company. And he was brainstorming all these other ideas. He realized, you know what? I have this problem, a crazy problem, painful problem. I should solve this problem.
1: This is very interesting. The part that you mentioned where he went through an academic exercise after he decided that he wanted to start a company, and he went through a lot of ideas, researching those ideas. Eventually, he landed on something that he was already passionate about. And that's a great fit for a founder, where the founder already knows the space enough to know that there is some a possibility for a creative solution. So that I resonate with that, and I see that quite often with startups. But you have made more than a hundred angel investments. Are they all teams uh, with people that worked with you in the past? Or do you also invest in companies that you haven't met the founders, you haven't had a strong relationship with them?
0: No, I think they absolutely, it's impossible because with, uh, with that many investments, there's no way that I could have invested only in founders that worked for me or worked with me. Let me see. Yes, I think a good company there. Is a company called Email Age. E M A I L A G E H, and the reason I got to know this company was when I joined Square. After about a few months of getting onboarded to Square and settling down, I basically would go and talk to different teams at Square, and and the risk team or the payments team were, you know would basically do these checks. One of the big challenges that most payment companies have is how do you when somebody applies for a payments account. How do you make sure they are not a fraudulent, you know, they're not just a, a fraudster who's setting up an account to get access to, you know, a card reader to basically then defraud customers or whatever the case may be. And so fraud and risk and making sure we know identity of a person so that they can't uh, sign up with many different identities is very, very important. And email address is a very easy way uh, for people to kind of defraud you. And you can create lots of email addresses. It's a very easy vector. And so email age, I mean, one of the tools that the Square payments and, and onboarding team was raving about was a company called Emailage, uh, which was a tool which allows you to send an email, you get an email, so someone applies for Square, and Square will send that email address to Emailage, and Emailage returns a risk score for that email. And uh, that, e- that risk score tells you, hey, you know, whether or not, how, what is the degree of risk on a zero to 100 scale, I forgot the scale exactly, but if it's very risky, not very risky, low risk, etc., And uh, they were kind of, they were almost complaining about the product because they were like, it's such a good product, but it's almost a lock-in product because the more data we are sending to them, the more they're getting smarter uh, because all the companies that they work with, they were apparently working with all the companies. The reason they were able to do this is because they've built a database of email addresses and risk profiles from all their customers. So in some ways, it's a self-perpetuating data network. Uh, uh, database which of email address and risk scores, which is all being fed by their customers. And so in order to access the database, you have to also give back your risk score. So Square had to give back, hey, you know, what did I learn about this email address? Was it risky or not? Any signals that we captured? And so email age was over time able to build this great defensible asset. And so I heard about this and I was thinking that's interesting. And then just a few weeks later, serendipitously, uh, Felicis Ventures, which is a venture capital firm, uh, emailed me saying, hey, we are leading a round in this firm company called Email Age. Uh, would you like to join? There's some space for angels. I was like, hang on, Email Age? You mean the email risk company? They were like, yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is a company that's used by Square. And so, I mean, it was, you know, there I didn't even meet the founder, but the product and the customer love for it uh, was so strong. And, and I did get to meet the founder after I committed. I mean, after I mentally had decided, I obviously always meet the founder, but I knew that the product was amazing. And that is a reflection on the founder that built a product that got a company like Square, which is a very conservative company in terms of adopting something that's in the payments flow. That's a pretty high bar there, but still they were using it and had been using it. And um, so kudos to Ray for building a company. And, you know, that's another example of where, you know, that's the opposite example where I didn't know the founder at all, but because I had unique insight into the, into the, the founder market, which was evidenced by the the product itself. It was a post product company or a pre product company, and um, and basically, I invested in them.
1: Oh, you you're talking about something that's uh, very unusual. Often, we hear that, especially at angel investment stages, when there's really not much to show, it's the charm of the entrepreneur that wows investors and others, also other early believers. But here in this case, you never met the entrepreneur until you mentally formed the conviction on this. It's the product and the solution, the objective view on what it can do. That really impressed you.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: That's not the usual story we hear with angel investments. It's very interesting
0: to hear. Yeah, it's different stages, you know, different stages.
1: Uh, how is the portfolio doing? You've made a hundred angel investments. What expectations do you set for entrepreneurs when you make those investments? Do you expect to generate huge returns? Is that a motivation in addition to other things you mentioned?
0: For me, the motivation is threefold. I think everyone does angel investing for different reasons. But I think if it's done only for financial reasons, I don't think it's, you know, it's it's the right frame of mind. I think you won't be a great angel investor because angel investment, there's a lot of work needed and and it's also being part of a community. And if, it's, if you're too focused on financial returns, entrepreneurs get turned off by that. So I do it for three reasons. Financial is the last one, making good returns, but it's the last one. The first one really is around uh, giving back to the community and being part of the community. I want to be part of the entrepreneurial community. I want to, that's that's what I really enjoy doing. And this is my way to give back to the entrepreneurs. I know, I support, and uh, and I want to keep doing that. Regardless of, I made investments where I, I'm almost certain that the company will maybe will not be a massive outcome or anything else like that. But I know the entrepreneur, I want to support them and, uh, for, me, for various reasons, and, and I will do that. And so that's, that's the number one thing, being, giving back, being part of the entrepreneur ecosystem, being part of the entrepreneur community. The second one is learning. For me, learning matters a lot. Every company I work with, every founder I work with, I try to see what can I learn from them that I can bring back into my day job. But I do work at DoorDash, for example, and and I do see a lot of things that can benefit every company I've been at that can benefit from my angel investments and from companies I've worked with. And then financial returns. And so I think every one of us who's doing angel investing has to think about what really matters and why are they in it. But financial uh, investing or returns as the number one thing is is a wrong thing. I think it's probably the number two or number three things. But something like learning, giving back, et cetera, is probably the top thing people should
1: focus on. How are you doing on all those 3 metrics with your uh, portfolio? I think the being an active angel investor has essentially
0: been I feel I, I looked at my Y Combinator has a, uh, has a ranking of angel investors and rating of angel investors rather, which uh, only the, the Y Combinator um, startup some of my inv- I've made a bunch of investments with in YC companies, and so someone uh, read it out to me, and I was quite happy to see. Uh, the, the comments that people had made. So it, it uh, makes me feel that I am contributing and I am a valuable member of the, uh, a value added member, I should say, of the entrepreneurial community. Uh, on the second front, learnings. I feel, I, have, I, every, I, I feel that my job, my ability to do my job well has been massively increased and improved as a result of this. And it, I have brought tons of insights back to my job and, and my company as a result of it. I feel that's probably the strongest of all. On the financial front, it's done very well. I think the, obviously, the older cohorts, I think of angel investing cohorts as uh, as annual cohorts. So I'll track it as what are the, all the angel investments I made in, say, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, each year separately, and look at the cohort together. It's too hard to look at one company. And so the cohort overall, each of the cohorts overall, has done extremely well in outperformed my benchmark is say the you know S&P 500 or one of these stock benchmarks and it has massively outperformed those benchmarks of course liquidity you know many times things are on paper so the older cohorts have had liquidity and have outperformed from an actual realized return the younger cohorts are outperformed but are still uh, much of it is on paper so we'll see how it goes when it actually comes to returning
1: Oh, that's really nice to hear. As an angel investor, you take the highest risk in the journey of uh, supporting an entrepreneur. So this is uh, this is one of the most important uh, roles that the startup ecosystem values. So I'm, you're doing a fantastic service to the community by actively playing a role as an angel investor. Uh, let me s- uh, try to summarize what we talked about uh, now, and then we'll move to the next part of it. You started with how you started as an engineer, became a product manager, and then became an executive. And along the way, you had your own startup stint. Uh, And it was very clear uh, in the beginning that you you made it clear that you were a Longhorn fan and you're a forever life Longhorn fan. But you also went through an MBA experience, which helped you transition your career from engineering to more into deeper into product management, and especially opening opportunities at companies like Google. Facebook and later at Square uh, the examples that you gave uh, which uh, starting with Juno how mission was very important and the leadership is also very important the two uh, are the qualities that you look for in any company before you consider joining them and that's a great metric to have i really like the two filters that you use when you look for angel investments you mentioned uh, relentlessly resourceful and the second is founder market fit, and the examples that you gave through Indigo Fair and Email Age showed those type of things that you look for, and what what goes on in those conversations uh, that brings to front all the qualities that will help you uh, form a conviction. Uh, you did mention uh, watching golf as a sport. I had to resist the urge to pull your leg on that one, but <laughs> I am going to spend some time to understand is it uh, how interesting that is. Uh, but it's nice to see that you 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 make something out of everything where you you are looking for interesting things outside what you normally do and towards the end, you mentioned the three qualities you look for when you're the metrics that you set for yourself uh, with your own angel portfolio, how you can contribute to the community, how you can learn and how you can generate financial returns. And it was very clear that financial returns is not the main motivation. Well, we can certainly talk more uh, for a longer time, but I want to switch to the the next segment where I ask you about community leadership. Is there a nonprofit organization that you're passionate about and why?
0: Yes. So I contribute to many. One that I, uh, we've gotten involved with volunteering and also contribute is a, an organization called Second Harvest of Silicon Valley. Second Harvest uh, supported both through giving as well as uh, through volunteering. Its work is about making sure that people have access to the most basic need, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, most basic need, which is food. It is one of the largest food banks in the nation and serves Uh, Food provides food to more than a quarter of a million people every month. And due to COVID, now their work is even more important as people have lost their jobs, become homeless, etc. And so more than half the people they serve are kids and seniors. I've been very impressed with their mission, with their execution, and overall hope to be involved. And over over time, I've developed an appreciation for food banks across the country and the critical role they play.
1: You would think that Silicon Valley, which is one of the most prosperous places in the world, uh, would take care of everyone around us. But it's sad to see a lot of homelessness uh, and a lot of people struggling for food. It's great that you you support this organization. Gokul, thank you so much for your time. Uh, A lot of insights in this uh, episode. It's always great to talk to you and learn from your experience.
0: Gopi, like I said, it's uh, I just talking to you is a treat and I'm excited to be part of this podcast and uh, thank you very much for having me here.
1: Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.